Hey folks, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is rapidly entering the endgame with the jury to receive its instructions on the charges on Monday morning, followed by the closing arguments of the prosecution and defense, and finally the beginning of jury deliberations sometime in the afternoon. Given the strength of Kyle's core claim of self-defense and the weakness of the state's attacks on that legal defense, it seems worth taking a look at the last desperate effort the prosecution is making to try to drag something resembling a win out of this smoking pile of a trial. And that's to sell an incredibly weakly supported argument of provocation to at least a single juror interested in accepting such nonsense. Now, Kyle Rittenhouse's legal defense to the use of force charges against him is, of course, centered on the privilege of self-defense under Wisconsin law. And having properly raised this legal defense at the start of these proceedings, the burden is now on the state to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. That doesn't mean the state has to disprove self-defense in its entirety. It merely means the state has to disprove any one of the four required elements of self-defense. And there are, of course, four core elements of self-defense under Wisconsin law that are possible targets of attack by the prosecution, innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness. As I've written extensively over the eight days of trial testimony, the state has offered little or no evidence attacking any of those four core elements of Rittenhouse's claim of self-defense, and certainly not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. They did not do so for the perfectly good reason that they have no such evidence. There is, however, what might be thought of as a backdoor avenue of attack on self-defense, and that target of attack becomes available where the defendant can be said to have provoked the attack against which he then defended himself. Before we dive into the meat of things, I do want to mention the sponsor for today's content. That's CCW Safe, a provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. What CCW Safe does is pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event. And those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you've had to shoot somebody in self-defense, they die. You find yourself charged with manslaughter or murder. It's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So if you don't have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be helpful to have a partner standing behind you to make sure you have the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought, as if the rest of your life depends on it, because really it does. I've looked at all the companies that offer similar types of services, as you might imagine, and I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me personally. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member, join me there. You can save 10% off your membership using the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. If we had any doubt what the form of attack the prosecution will bring to bear in their closing argument on Monday, that was resolved during yesterday's conference hearing, the meeting in court outside the presence of the jury in which the parties argue over these precise instructions that will be given to the jury for use in their deliberations. The answer, the prosecution's attack will come in the form of the legal doctrine of provocation. Now, it's worth noting that the jury can effectively only find the defendant guilty based upon a jury instruction that they have received from the judge. 
An instruction withheld from the jury necessarily withholds a path to conviction. Conversely, an instruction provided to the jury necessarily provides an additional path to conviction. Obviously, I'm talking about criminal instructions here, not defense instructions. Yesterday, the state informed the court that they wanted the jury to receive the Wisconsin Criminal Jury Instruction, abbreviated WCJI, on provocation in the context of self-defense. And that's known by its identifying number, WCJI 815. The defense naturally argued against this instruction, attempting to deny the state this path to a conviction. The state, however, won that argument. Accordingly, the jury will be instructed on the law of provocation per jury instruction 815, which is, of course, linked in the text version of today's content. And I do, as always, encourage you to read the whole thing. And therefore, the jury has been given a provocation-based path to conviction of Kyle Rittenhouse. This was a critical win for the prosecution. The self-defense-based defense narratives on each of the use of force charges against Kyle are all very robust and not readily subject to disproof beyond a reasonable doubt. Without provocation, the state would have found itself facing inevitable defeat, attacking the core self-defense justification on any of those charges. By winning the provocation instruction, however, the state has the potential to now simply upend the trial chessboard and sweep away all those self-defense pieces so favorably positioned for the defense. Why? Because under the doctrine of provocation, the provocateur simply doesn't qualify for the legal defense of self-defense at all. And if they don't qualify for self-defense in the first place, then the merits of those four elements of self-defense, innocence, imminence, proportionality, and reasonableness, simply become irrelevant. If the prosecution can convince the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that Kyle provoked the attacks upon him, then it simply doesn't matter that those people attacking him might have been the first to threaten or use force, that their attacks were actually in progress, that they were threatening him with deadly force, or that his perceptions of the nature of those attacks were both subjectively and objectively reasonable. To be more precise, the provocateur can still physically defend himself against such attacks. One assumes they would do so, but he cannot later justify that physical defense as lawful and free of criminal liability. Importantly, there are two types of provocation under Wisconsin law, as under the law of most states, each with different conditions, simple provocation and provocation with intent. Now, simple provocation is engaging in unlawful conduct that would be reasonably likely to provoke a violent response. If that occurs, the person who provoked the violent response does not have a legal privilege of justifying their use of force against that response as self-defense unless they meet additional conditions not usually required for self-defense. Specifically, the person who engaged in simple provocation has effectively acquired a legal duty to retreat, the element of avoidance that would not normally be a legal duty under Wisconsin law in the case of an otherwise lawful act of self-defense. Before the simple provoker can justify their defense against the provoked violence as legally justified, they must withdraw from the confrontation and effectively communicate their withdrawal to the other party. The second form of provocation is provocation with intent. This occurs when the defendant not only provoked a violent response, but did so with the deliberate intent of then having an excuse to use deadly force against the person they provoked. Importantly, the provoker with intent cannot regain self-defense by withdrawal and communication. 
On the other hand, the state does acquire the burden to prove that malicious intent to provoke in order to have an excuse to use deadly force beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury instruction that addresses both simple provocation and provocation with intent under Wisconsin law is Wisconsin Criminal Jury Instruction 815. It is, of course, linked in the text version of today's content, and it will be read to the jury Monday morning. Now, the state has explicitly informed the court that it's the state's intent to argue that every use of force for which Kyle has been charged was the downstream consequence of his initial purported provocation of Joseph Rosenbaum. So if the state can convict on the Rosenbaum charge on the basis of provocation, they believe all the rest of their charges will also result in convictions like a series of fallen dominoes. It's also been mentioned that Assistant DA Jim Krause explicitly informed the court during the conference hearing on jury instructions that the prosecution intends to focus specifically on simple provocation in its closing argument rather than provocation with intent. And this makes sense if only because of the state's choice of charges in this case. The shooting of Rosenbaum was charged not as an intentional homicide, uh, as the state would charge Kyle for his fatal shooting of Anthony Huber, but as a reckless homicide. Remember, the whole point of the doctrine of provocation with intent is that the person provokes an attack by another with the intent to then use deadly force upon them. It naturally follows that the subsequent use of force is intentional, not merely reckless. Arguing provocation with intent in a use of force event that even the state has not charged as intentional would seem logically incoherent. So I would not normally expect provocation with intent to play a role in the state's closing here. That said, this prosecution has not been marked by a great deal of logical coherence at any point. So anything is possible, I suppose. In any case, my expectation is that the state will argue simple provocation, and that's surely the narrative that Assistant DA Jim Krause set out to the court during the conference meeting yesterday, telling the court, quote, We are saying that in the incident with Mr. Rosenbaum, the defendant provoked it by raising his rifle and pointing it at individuals, Joshua Zeminski. So that is why Mr. Rosenbaum then gave chase to him. The defendant then had a duty to retreat. He retreated. Instead of giving notice of his withdrawal from the fight, he turned and pointed his gun again at Mr. Rosenbaum, an unarmed civilian, which he admitted he knew he was unarmed, and that continued. We will argue that the video evidence, contrary to the defendant's testimony, shows that he raised his weapon at individuals without justification, and that is what provoked the attack by Mr. Rosenbaum. Close quote. Now, if we assume for purposes of argument that what the state is saying is true, and I know, I know, and set aside for the moment any perfectly reasonable doubts about the evidence offered to support this claim, especially that photo, would Kyle purportedly pointing his rifle at Rosenbaum qualify as simple provocation? Well, jury instruction 815 tells us that, quote, a person who engages in unlawful conduct of a type likely to provoke others to attack and who does provoke an attack is not allowed to use or threaten force in self-defense against that attack. Close quote. Now, the state's argument is that Kyle's purported pointing of his rifle at Zeminski was unjustified, therefore at least a misdemeanor offense, and therefore unlawful, so it would qualify as unlawful conduct for the purposes of simple provocation. Further, the state argues that this unlawful conduct of pointing the rifle provoked a defense of others response from Rosenbaum, that all Rosenbaum wanted to do was neutralize Kyle's purported threat to innocent people in the area. 
If both of those claims are believed to be true, then the conditions for simple provocation that loses Kyle the legal defense of self-defense have been met and self-defense collapses. Certainly, if one believes the state's claim that Kyle pointed his rifle for no justifiable reason, that would be an unlawful act, reasonably likely to provoke a response, though believing that claim is a pretty big ask. Nevertheless, again, for our purposes here, we are analyzing the argument as if the claim were provable. Now, even if Kyle was a simple provoker, it is possible for someone who is engaged in simple provocation to regain their privilege of self-defense. How? Well, jury instruction 815 tells us that, quote, a person who provokes an attack may regain the right to use or threaten force if the person in good faith withdraws from the fight and gives adequate notice of the withdrawal to his assailant, close quote. So even if Kyle was a simple provoker, he can regain his privilege of self-defense by withdrawal and communication. The defense will naturally argue that Kyle's flight across the car source parking lot with the murderous Rosenbaum in hot pursuit should qualify as withdrawal in communication. Well, maybe I would think so, but maybe not. The policy behind allowing the regaining of self-defense by withdrawal and communication is to reward the person who may have provoked the fight for their willingness to withdraw from that fight in good faith. Now, a bad faith withdrawal uh, a momentary withdrawal to reload one's weapons with the intent of returning to the fight would not qualify for purposes of regaining innocence. It has to be a good faith withdrawal. The state here plans to argue that Kyle's flight across the car source parking lot was not, in fact, a good faith withdrawal from the confrontation he had purportedly provoked. Their evidence for this is that when Kyle was roughly halfway across the lot, he briefly turned and purportedly pointed his gun back at Rosenbaum. Now, the defense will say showed the gun, not pointed the gun, but that's a factual dispute for the jury. The act of pointing the rifle back at Rosenbaum, the state will argue, was either a continuation of the initial provocation or a new provocation, but in any case, it did mean that Kyle's flight was not a good faith withdrawal from the fight. But wait, there's more. In addition to the requirement of good faith withdrawal, this provision to regain the privilege of self-defense also requires that the provoker give quote-unquote adequate notice of that withdrawal. Now, in the real world, Not the crazy assistant DA binger world, but in the real world, it's common to accept as adequate notice what the law would call constructive notice. Notice is constructive when it's not stated explicitly, but can be readily understood from the circumstances. Here, a provoker who is in full flight from the conflict is usually deemed to have given constructive notice sufficient to qualify as adequate for the purposes of notification. A notarized letter is not required. This trial is not a normal proceeding, however, so expect that the state will claim that Kyle failed to give Rosenbaum adequate notice of his withdrawal. Overall, then, I expect the state to argue that purported simple provoker Kyle cannot regain his privilege of self-defense under the withdrawal and communication provision because his withdrawal was not in good faith and his communication uh, was not adequate notice for this person. There is a second way that a simple provoker can regain their privilege of self-defense, and that's under circumstances where the provoked response comes in the form of a deadly force attack. We know the state intends to argue that Rosenbaum's fighting Kyle for his gun was purely defensive in nature and not an attack at all, but the defenses argue that Rosenbaum's attack was deadly in nature, that if Rosenbaum had seized Kyle's gun, he would have killed him with it as he threatened to kill Kyle earlier that night. 
When the provoked attack is deadly in nature, as the defense would certainly claim here, jury instruction 815 tells us that then the provoker, quote, may lawfully act in self-defense, but the person may not use or threaten force intended or likely to cause death unless he reasonably believes he has exhausted every other reasonable means to escape from or otherwise avoid death or great bodily harm, close quote. On this point, the state plans to argue that purported simple provoker Kyle cannot regain his privilege to self-defense under this provision because although he fled a short distance to the spot where he ended up shooting the pursuing Rosenbaum, he had not actually exhausted every reasonable means to escape. Indeed, at the charging conference, the state claimed that when Kyle stopped and shot Rosenbaum, he was among a group of loosely spaced cars with plenty of open space in front of him to continue his flight. Naturally, the defense contests this characterization of the circumstances, noting the very large group of people on the edge of the lot in the process of violently smashing the vehicles there. But again, that's now an issue in dispute and therefore a fact question for the jury. Indeed, that's the core problem for the defense on this provocation attack. The prosecution has been able to orchestrate, to the satisfaction of Judge Schroeder in any case, a sufficient series of issues in dispute around the doctrine of simple provocation that the judge agreed to submit the provocation instruction to the jury. Now, it's notable that Judge Schroeder has a tremendous amount of respect for the province and prerogatives of the jury as the finder of fact. Where there is no relevant fact in dispute, then there is no fact-finding to be done, and the issue is simply a matter of law that should be decided by the judge alone, without the participation of the jury. That should have been the outcome on the gun possession charge, by the way. There is no issue in dispute, so there is no role for the jury. The charge is simply inapplicable to Kyle's circumstances and should have been dismissed by the judge as a matter of law. Once there is even a hair of evidence on an issue in dispute, however, the slightest baby breath of evidence— then the matter arguably falls to the jury to make the finding a fact on that issue. So many of us may find the evidence in support of the proposition that Kyle pointed his rifle at Zeminski, provoking Rosenbaum's attack, the Rorschach photo of the purported event to be laughable. But it is evidence on an issue in dispute, however laughable. And so the issue in dispute goes to the jury. The same is true for the state's other propositions here, that Kyle's retreat was not in good faith, that his notice of withdrawal was inadequate, that he failed to exhaust every other possible means of escape. Perhaps many of us find the evidence in support of those propositions to be similarly laughable. But there exists evidence, mostly, I guess, to support those propositions, however laughable that evidence may be, and so they properly go to the jury. And here's the great risk to the defense generally, and Kyle in particular. The jury may not laugh. My sense is that even the prosecution doesn't believe in the merits or truthfulness of the argument they're putting forward here on provocation as a justified reason to deny Kyle the privilege of self-defense. They are, however, determined to have him convicted by any means necessary. And these arguments on provocation appear to be the only means at hand. Certainly, an attack on the elements of Kyle's claim of self-defense has no likelihood to any degree of reasonable certainty of being successful in meeting the state's burden to disprove self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not even close. With provocation, however, the state is able to offer an interested juror the thinnest of threads by which they might pull themselves to a conviction. 
By interested juror, I mean a juror that may be unwilling to convict Kyle if there's absolutely no rationale to justify a conviction, as is the case with the legal defense of self-defense itself here, but who would be willing to convict if even the slightest rationale is offered. It's like a recently quit smoker who's trying to do the right thing and not pick up a cigarette in the absence of any reason at all, but who finds that even the slightest reason is sufficient for one quick smoke. Given the nature of the broadcast of these trial proceedings, none of us not in the courtroom can see the faces of the jurors, can see how they react to testimony, to video evidence, to the questioning by the lawyers. But the lawyers certainly can and use their perceptions of the jurors' reactions to craft their own legal strategy. Ideally, of course, Assistant DA Binger would like to convince all 12 jurors to unanimously agree that Kyle's guilt has been proven beyond a reasonable doubt and obtain his desired convictions. Perhaps that seems unlikely, given the paucity of evidence inconsistent with self-defense and the flimsiness of the evidence in support of provocation. Maybe Binger sees an outright conviction by a unanimous jury as out of reach, at least in this courtroom with this judge, with this jury. But perhaps Assistant D.A. Binger has seen what he believes to be an interested juror sitting before him, and he just wants to offer that interested juror the slightest pretext by which to vote for guilt. And really, all Binger needs is one interested juror to take his offer, because if he gets one, he gets a hung jury and a mistrial. Now, normally, I would call a mistrial a win for the defense, but That's because normally most defendants are guilty, so the mistrial is a gift that avoids an outright conviction. In Kyle's case, a mistrial is a win for the prosecution because Kyle appears by the overwhelming weight of the evidence to be innocent. So the mistrial here is a thief that takes from Kyle an outright acquittal. Worse, it simply puts him right back in the tender hands of Assistant D.A. Binger, who is entirely free to put Kyle through another full-blown trial again, perhaps with a different, more amenable judge, and certainly with a different, perhaps more amenable jury. And every retrial is a trial that Assistant D.A. Binger is fighting with the same resources with which he's always provided in his office as a prosecutor, but which Kyle fights with whatever resources might be left from the prior fight. And those resources diminish with each battle, making him more vulnerable with each successive retrial. And don't think for an instant that Assistant DA Binger is not aware of that. Okay, folks, that's all I have for you on this topic for tonight. Remember, if you carry a gun so you're hard to kill, that's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, my family is hard to kill, then you also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until next time, I remain Attorney Andrew Branca for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.